So it started as a transitory problem driven by post-COVID supply constraints, but it seems to have turned out to be a whole lot more than that. But is monetary policy working this time? When it comes to lifting interest rates, central banks have all come at it at different speeds, starting at different times and perhaps ending in different places. So how do we have such a huge variation? Is it again down to supply constraints? Those with less of an issue need less medicine from the central bank. Today, is monetary policy working? And which central banks have got it right? The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. Yeah, these are uncertain times, aren't they? That's for sure. I mean, we've had inflation before, but not in this way. Not because of this big drop in supplies, except maybe after world wars. So does that mean monetary policy is less effective this time around, particularly as despite higher prices, people with money in the bank from the COVID years have continued spending? If that all means that monetary policy is less effective or it's slower to work, just how much longer will interest rates stay high and will they get higher still? And why are we seeing different responses in different markets? Like Australia, for example, seems to be navigating their way through it all better than most. We started later, rose less than most, and don't seem to be suffering a great deal so far because of it. Well, let's talk about all of that with Sally All, Chief Investment Officer at JB Weir. She's with me for the weekend edition. And I should add, the views that you're going to hear are those of Sally's and J.B. Weir, not necessarily those of NAB, but that is the idea of the weekend edition, that we uh, cover a broad section of uh, topics with a wide range of opinions. So, Sally, welcome to the weekend edition. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, when we started, when inflation started rising, it was all about supply constraints. It was all transitory. Transitory was the big word that every central bank was using, that they didn't need to do anything about it. It was all the supply side. Um, So is it the, I mean, countries that are self-sufficient like the US and Australia when it comes to energy, if that is the case, if supply is a big chunk of it, then naturally they're going to fare better, aren't they? Because they can cope without quite so much of a disruption in supplies. Yeah, I think that's I think that's broadly the the right way to think about it. Um, you know, particularly in the things that matter quite a bit for inflation. So food is an obvious one, energy prices uh, another one. Um, so countries that have, as you say, the ability to be um, self sufficient or you know effectively net exporters of of both of those products, you know, maybe have a bit more control. Um, you know, over that particular part of the inflation basket. But I think, you know, it's interesting in the sense that we are in a world where, you know, one of our views at JB Weir is that commodity markets, you know, particularly those relating to hydrocarbons are going to remain structurally tight for a number of years. And so this leaves, I think, sort of the global economy and global inflation pretty vulnerable to, you know, far more frequent spikes in energy prices. Um, and that will mean, you know, I think generally a more volatile backdrop for inflation. So in some respects, as as shocking as it was when it all happened a couple of years ago, um, I think, you know, our view would be this is sort of like the new normal for central banks. And that's why there's been, I think, quite a focus on getting on top of this inflation episode because we know what we're we're sort of staring down the barrel of over the next dec- right. decade. Um, and but, it, but, if it, but, it, but, but if it's supply-driven and if it's, you know, sort of like we're seeing these energy shocks, I mean, is monetary policy actually going to fix that problem? Because it's, it's not going to suddenly magic up extra supply, is it? No, it's not. Um, and, you know, monetary policy is there to, to effectively, you know, smooth out the cycle. That's, that's what it's meant to do. It's, it's, it has absolutely no, no role to play whatsoever in the productive or the, the supply side, um, of the economy. And I guess 
through that period that economists call the great moderation, it was sort of easy as a central bank. If you had a supply side shock, you know, whether it was, say, the price of bananas here in Australia in, in 2006 or whether it was a, a spike in oil prices, you were able to look through that because you knew that ultimately um, the market would would work um, in the case of oil and more supply would eventually come online. Or in the case of bananas, eventually the, the crop would grow again and the, the supply would go up. And so you could look through those periodic events. The problem that central banks had this time around is that they had a really unfortunate confluence of pretty serious supply side issues, but also um, a huge lift in aggregate demand. And so it wasn't just a one-sided story that was driving the monetary policy response. Um, and it was, a, I think, a you know, with the benefit of hindsight, a far more complex environment in which to be making monetary policy than, than probably a lot of central banks had been used to in the prior decade or two. But, I mean, every government around the world has just left it to central banks, haven't they? It's been sort of like it's monetary policy, no no, no fiscal policy. And if you if you want to slow demand, which is what it's all about, isn't it? We want to, those people who've got money sitting in their bank accounts, we want them to not use it now. I mean, there's, there's stuff you could do that governments could be doing. Like they could be saying, for example, well, let's give you an incentive not to spend that money now. We'll, we'll, we'll provide some sort of incentive for you to put it onto your pension fund, for example, so that uh, you delay that spending. But it's been left to central banks. And I'm just, it's like a, a, a one trick pony almost. Yeah. So I think, you know, getting to your point on, you know, why different countries are sort of doing different things. I mean, fiscal policy, I think, is one of those differentiating factors. So in Australia, you know, the broad sort of, I guess, ambition of the government has has effectively been not to make the problem worse. So, um, and they've done a little bit of stuff in terms of energy rebates, maybe just to take some of the, the heat out of in, inflation when it comes to energy prices. But the general approach was, we understand this is a difficult thing for the central bank to manage. And what we can, what we can commit to is not making the story um, worse. In the US, you know, I think you'd argue that fiscal policy there is running pretty loose. Um, you know, any, most, most forecasters, you know, whether they're, they're the official congressional budget office or sell-side economists are actually, you know, increasing deficit projections. And, and that's largely a function of um, some pretty big policy decisions through fiscal policy like the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act um, that are actually not only spending a lot of money themselves, but also through the, the work of incentives spurring quite meaningful um, investment spend in the US. So, you know, I think fiscal policy, you're right to identify that because I think that is one of the the more differentiating factors in terms of what central banks have had to face into. So is it working for the United States? Is that what the difference is? Because, uh, I mean, I can see the argument that if, if the government is spending money and that's uh, being put into investing in mm-hmm. the, the productive capacity, uh, then obviously that adds to supply, so that helps to correct this supply-demand mismatch. But other people would say, well, no, this is the worst time possible for the government to be spending money because there's high interest rates, it's going to cost a great deal, uh, and that's going to be a drag on the economy. Well, I think I think they're doing something that's that's quite different to a lot of other jurisdictions. Um, and you, you can see in the hard data, you can see that, um, you know, investment in effectively structures for manufacturing, so factories, um, as we know it, has lifted, you know, very sharply over the last couple of quarters. And, and most economists suspect that is to do with the incentives that the government's providing to set up factories to effectively, you know, increase the US's capacity to manufacture um tech and then on the other other side of that you know the inflation reduction act is all about incentives for green energy production so they are you know effectively expanding their their supply side and there is a sense um i think at the moment that 
given a lift in investment, which looks pretty compelling, and given some tentative but definitely better news on labour productivity, that it is possible that the US is actually undergoing a positive supply shock at the moment. I don't think too many economists are willing to really thump the table and say it's definitely there. But I think you know, the evidence is starting to mount that that's definitely the direction in which the risks are building. And so that's actually a positive for the US economy. It means you can run at a faster rate of growth and do that without necessarily putting upward pressure on inflation. So when you say a supply shock, you mean they're getting the, the, too much supply? Well, not too much because um, it doesn't feel like, you know, prices are, uh, are coming down. I mean, certainly the rate of inflation is falling, but they are enhancing the, the productive capacity of the economy, which is um, generally something, as we said before, that central banks aren't meant to do, and it's really something that governments are meant to do through policy design. So in the US, that does seem to be working. And yet, you know, some people would argue, well, look, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what the government spends that money on, it can spend it on on infrastructure, that's going to employ people, that's going to put more money into people's bank accounts, therefore, there's the consumer spending can increase, and that could be inflationary. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think this is you know one of the the sort of thematics at the moment, which is that we we've we've faced into what have been very aggressive tightening cycles with unemployment rates that have remained um, you know pretty much at or close to cyclical lows, and so from that perspective, yes, rates have gone up a lot, but um, you know households pretty much have as much work as as they want to do, and so. I think that has provided um, more of an offset to the, the the impact of rate hikes than we have seen in prior cycles. So does the speed of rate, rights, rate rises matter? So, I mean, I, the argument for it, of course, is that, you know, you, you've got to do it quickly because otherwise wage pressures can get in, entrenched. But the ECB started early, but they moved slowly. The RBNZ started early but moved quickly. The FRMC and the RBA started later, but between them, I mean, there's not, you know, not a huge variation between all of those. If you look at inflation rates, I mean, what, around 5.3% in Europe, 6% in New Zealand, 5.4% in Australia. Okay, it's 3.2% mm. in, in the US, but, it, I mean, but that's from a late start. So is there any evidence to say, look, if you started out early, you're going to be further down the track on, on, on all of this? Uh, and, if, and if that is not the case, doesn't it raise the question, you know why this difference in in how monetary policy is is working out, other than obviously, you know the geography and where you're getting your supplies from. Mm, so I guess, as as you said, like there was quite a big difference between you know the the early adopters of rate hikes. I mean, you know the Kiwis started in October of 2021, and the RBA didn't really get going until May of the following following year. Um, and so that's a that's a meaningful difference um, in terms of the speed of rate hikes. Um, you know, I think most central banks just didn't have a lot of flexibility there. Um, and particularly the ones who started later, like the RBA, um, I think it was sort of clear once they got going that they were really behind the curve. And so when you are behind the curve, what you what you forgive or what you, you give up in that whole process is just the ability to calibrate um, monetary policy. And so they just had to get going. And I think it didn't really worry them in the sense that the cash rate, if we take Australia, was 10 basis points. And, you know, for all the arguments about where the neutral rate is, what you know with probably close to 100% certainty is that at 10 basis points, you are running extraordinarily loose monetary policy. And so that first 200, 250 basis points worth of rate hikes, you don't have to think about um, too hard, really, because you know you at the very minimum, you've got to get policy back to something that resembles a neutral setting. Once you've done that, then you start to say, well, probably don't need it at neutral, we probably need it at, at contractionary or 
tight monetary policy setting. And so you go another 100, 150 basis points. And then you get to the point where, you know, as, as the current governor likes to say, you're in the calibration phase where it's sort of fiddling at the margins. And so I think that's why, you know, we saw, um, you know, pretty rapid tightening cycles because it was sort of obvious what, what had to be done. And now that we've done the bulk of the work, you can see pretty much all central banks have slowed down a bit. They're willing to watch the data and they feel far more comfortable that they've got a policy setting that looks sort of about right. What I do think is interesting is that there's still huge variation in real rates. Um, and so when you look at sort of countries we've been talking about, you know, the US and Canada have their real policy rate well in positive territory. And then countries like um, Australia, you know, we really stand out. Um, the UK, um, Europe still have real rates well in negative territory. And so I sort of struggle with this, with this idea that, you know, we're about to start cutting rates when we haven't even got the real rate back to, to zero, let alone into positive territory. Right, so is that damaging of- then? Is that is there a real risk then if we do that, that we're going to see inflation starting to kick back up again? Then? Well, I think that's definitely where where the risks lie. And that that's, I think, still where policymakers are, are, are sort of more worried about than not. So we've had a bit of a free kick from um, more goods inflation than I think most forecasters had expected. And that's partly a function of what's going on in China and what's happened to their, their currency. And so that is bringing inflation down reasonably quickly. Um, But there are different stories playing out around different components of inflation in different countries. So in the US, rents have have come down, that's helped inflation. Energy prices have come down, that's helped inflation. But we've got the opposite dynamic here in Australia. So, um, you know, there's a common part to inflation and then there's the bits and pieces of inflation that are driven by unique or idiosyncratic factors. Um, And I, I still sort of feel in Australia that, you know, we've got this unfortunate sort of group of drivers of inflation. Rents is a big one. Clearly, energy prices is another one. We're worried about food prices as El Nino weather patterns start to to impact our summer here. Um, and then we've got this sort of uncomfortable story, which again is different to the US where unit labor costs are running at 8% a year and we've got zero productivity growth. Now, the RBA is saying that story will sort itself out. Productivity will lift. Um, let's hope it does. Um, but all those sorts of things would make me, if I was running the central bank, a little bit nervous that we are not out of the woods. Right. But so why all this talk about wage pressures, though? Because it seems like, you know, that isn't a big issue. I mean, if people are seeing a cut in their real wages, which is happening particularly for lower income people, then that is uh, that that is obviously going to uh, keep inflation down because people are spending less, less pressure on demand. But, uh, but we are a long way from a situation where people are exceeding demand because they're getting a higher wage uh, than, than inflation. I mean, Australian wages increased by at most 3.7% annually at a time when inflation was over 8%. So that is a long way from a a situation where we're getting increased demand or we're seeing a a wage spiral. So why this big concern about wage pressures? Yeah, no, that's a valid point. I mean, I think that's what what central banks were nervous about, right? You had these really tight labour markets. You had clearly very high headline inflation and that the combination of those two things would really force a breakout in wages where people sort of look at inflation and say, look, it's going up at 7 8%. I don't want a wage rise of 3 I want at least double that, maybe some more, and you get into that wage price spiral. Um, and so in the US, wage wage pressures sort of accelerated and they got up, you know, with a five handle on them. They've come back a little bit. Here in Australia, you know, as you say, 37 sounds pretty benign, basically. And the RBA would sort of argue that, look, you get that sort of number and you get a bit of productivity growth and that's all pretty consistent with inflation settling between two to three. 
you know, one thing I, I do think you need to be mindful of is, again, some of the, the sort of institutional arrangements that mean that those wages numbers are probably not directly comparable. And here we know that about 40% of workers are on enterprise bargaining agreements, which only reset usually once every three years. Um, and so what that does is that it places a bit of a lag in the official wage numbers as to how quickly um, wages growth rises. So while the the numbers at the moment still look pretty good, I still think there's a risk that as we move through the back half of this year and into 2024, that those wages numbers at the very least look sticky, possibly and most likely actually go up. Um, <clears throat> and that might, again, be a bit of a point of difference between Australia and other parts of the world where it feels like wage pressures are uh, subsiding a little bit. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful. But my sense would be that, you know, the RBA was probably pretty worried about the risk of a wage price spiral. I think that risk has dissipated and it's less of a, a driver of um, policy at the moment. But again, you just sort of feel locally, you know, it's probably a little bit too soon to put up the white flag and say, yep, we're all good on on the wages front. So what about the, the, the Tasman difference? So the RBNZ has lifted rates by 525 basis points over, mm. you know, getting close to two years now. So I think that works out, you know, pretty close to 25 basis points per month. The economy is slowing, Australia less so, and yet the RBA is lifted by, what, 400 basis points, 125, less than the RBNZ, and they started seven months later. And it looks like Mm. we've got a better chance, although I was going to say it looks like we've got the better chance of a soft landing, but you're making me think about that now. Uh, And yet, you know, Philip Lowe is getting lambasted uh, for doing too much. I mean, hasn't he done better than most? (laughs) So he would he you know he's got the chance to go from You're choking sort of on zero that idea, hero. Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. You know, like as you said, he, he's um you know come in for a fair bit of public criticism. But you know, should he deliver the soft landing? I mean, he'll go from zero to hero pretty quickly because there aren't many central bankers in the world who would be able to put their hand up and say they've delivered the the fabled soft landing. Um, right. But, but yeah, from no, what you're saying today, we seem to be a long way from that. That that would be an early call. Yeah, I mean, I think markets are, are sort of a bit like they are in the US. They want a price for that. You know, certainly when you look at the outlook for um, earnings in the listed sector, like it's the softest of soft landings um, and and sort of similar when you look at the profile for what the market has priced in for the RBA over the next little while. But, yeah, New Zealand's interesting. I mean, it's always one of those high volatility economies. You know, when they have a cycle, they really have a cycle in New Zealand. They know how to do it. Um, and so... Yes, they've lifted rates pretty aggressively, and I think we are starting to see um, now signs that the economy is is slowing quite quite meaningfully um, in in response to that. And this is an interesting story, right? Because they started, as we said, um, you know, at least sort of six and a bit more months ahead of Australia, and it's only now that the data is starting to turn. Um, a fair bit softer in New Zealand. And so this, again, speaks to this idea that monetary policy has these long lags. Um, And so this is why, you know, I do think let's not get too excited about declaring soft landing because we're not there yet. Um, it's really only a little bit over a year since the RBA started and, and they've put a lot into the system. And so, But New Zealand has had to go so much further. Why is that? Uh, I, I, don't, I actually don't know the answer to that. I mean, part of it could be that, you know, maybe they have a, a, a sort of mortgage um, arrangement where, you know, generally most people um, yeah, the speed of take out fixed rate mortgages. Yeah, yeah. So the speed of transmission, you know, is is longer in New Zealand and that's always been the case. And I think that's why you have had more volatility in, in rate cycles in, in, in that country. But it's not like, um, you know, fiscal policy settings were 
um, you know, materially different in New Zealand to other economies. So I wouldn't say that that's a, a huge driver of of the difference. Um, there has always been a sense that sort of real rates were higher in New Zealand or neutral rates were higher in New Zealand than than they have been in in other economies. And and so that sort of feeds through to the term structure of rates and, you know, maybe five, five and a half percent in New Zealand is a bit like sort of four, four and a half percent um, in Australia as well. So could be any any combination of of those factors. It might turn out that the RBNZ's completely overcooked it and they really didn't need to go above five and they should have stopped at four and a half. You know, we don't know we don't know that yet, but that's that's also possible too. So we're gonna be pouring over the history um, books at the end of all of this, aren't we? To see Yeah, and I think what this tells you is that this is not a science, it's an art. No. Um <laughs> and <laughs> you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, I'm not sure that central bankers in New Zealand would have a really strong view on, you know, whether the 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 setting of monetary policy or the the cash rate um, at the moment is exactly where it needs to be or a little bit too high. Well, let's not upset Philip Lowe then because he's an artist in that case. <laughs> so, what are the? Uh, so, I mean, just finishing off then, and I could talk to you for hours on all of this because obviously we are in uncharted territory, aren't we? But what what do you think mm. are the the big risks now? Of course, one of them is that inflation doesn't come down. I mean, we know it's coming down, but it doesn't come down as fast as we're expecting. Uh, and if that's the case, do we have a, a plan B? And also, we know that low-income earners are the ones who are suffering the most. So we, uh, we you know, the Conference Board mm-hmm. Consumer Confidence Survey showed that, you know, that, uh, uh, that you know, this big dichotomy between low-income earners and, uh, and actually, you know, middle-income earners doing not so badly. Uh, and, you know, we've also got circumstantial evidence around the world, rises in shoplifting, mm-hmm. people not buying uh, insurance, uh, Michelle Bullock having protests the other day as well. You know, uh, if central banks keep on pushing harder, it could become politically unpalatable as well, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, – it feels like the environment in which central bankers are delivering rate hikes is a really different one. Um, there have always been distributional impacts of rate hikes and rate cuts. So, you know, when, when the RBA was cutting rates – um, you know, ahead of the pandemic, you know, Philip Lowe would stand up and say, look, I, I get letters from retirees, you know, berating me for doing this because, you know, I'm taking away their fixed income. Um, clearly, that's the opposite right now. And so that that's always been the case, but it feels like, you know, whether it's the the use of social media or or whatever, that those distributional impacts, I guess, are being amplified um, and that makes the the setting of policy more difficult than than perhaps um, it has been in the past. I think any central banker would tell you, yeah, the hardest part of your job is when you're lifting rates. Like no one, no one's going to thank you um, for that. And so it's really difficult to articulate a strategy where you have to argue that this is actually the right thing for the economy in the longer term. Because as Philip Lowe has been saying, well, we've got two choices: we can deal with inflation now, or we can deal with it later. And if we're going to deal with it later, it'll be a bigger problem and a nastier response. So we're trying to sort of you know, do the right thing and and do it early. Um, but that brings with it a risk that the political pressure gets too much. And so one of the risks that, I mean, you've, you've talked about one, which is that inflation just proves to be sticky and, and more is needed to bring it down. And I think that's a risk that all investors should be cognizant of. Another one we think about is that, well, what happens if central banks just sort of give up and say, you know what, it used to be 2%, but the, the politics of this are now so difficult that we're happy just to let it, Stop at three, and three is the new two. Now Jackson Hole. I mean, could it be though? You know, there was I mean, could that be right though? I mean, could, you know, could be. 
Where do- it could be. I mean, at the moment, we're not we're not seeing that. And at the moment, you know, the, the government, I think, has been uncomfortable but broadly supportive here in Australia of what the RBA is doing because they would have had many conversations behind closed doors where Phil Lowe has, has said there's no easy way out of this, but we've got to get it on top of it now rather than rather than later. So I think there's, a you know, an understanding and, you know, a, a level of support for what they're doing, but it's politically really difficult for the government to to manage. And at the end of the day, it's the government that, you know, grants the central bank its independence. And so that's always meant as a central bank, you can't really annoy the government too much um, because at the end of the day, if they want to, they can take that independence away. And so it has felt at times like we're sort of pushing the boundaries of that. And that's why I thought it was interesting, you know, through the middle of the year, the RBA started to talk about, well, maybe there's a bit more on the balance sheet that we could do than just letting it passively run off. And I think that was almost a bit of a signal that they were saying to the market, look, if we do get completely compromised politically, maybe we stop rate hikes and we we start a more aggressive form of um, shrinking the balance sheet. So, um, again, you know, it's hard enough trying to work out whether you, you've you've got the right level of, of policy rates, let alone dealing with that in a in a clearly much more, I guess, febrile political and, and social environment. Well, you know, there's another discussion, isn't it, for another day because, you know, you look at what's happening in, in, in Japan uh, where, you know, the weaker currency is helping exports, businesses are still able to borrow mm-hmm. at low rates, they've got uh, foreign investment in Japanese equities, you know, exactly the opposite of what's happening in China right now. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of state intervention happening there. I mean, you know, there's a question about whether they've actually got it right. And of course, you know, can you can you ride out inflation by just trying to control the bond markets? I, th- I think maybe in the short term you can do that, but I don't think that's a sustainable strategy over, over the long run. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we think Philip Lowe's job is hard, but I think it would be even harder if you were sitting in the hot seat in, in Japan because, you know, you're trying to manage long-end yields, you're trying to manage, um, you know, monetary policy, you're trying to exit from extremely accommodative monetary policy um, and and then dealing with a currency that's, that's you know, very weak versus most other major trading partners, particularly China. So, yeah, it's a pretty um, pretty difficult cocktail of, of factors in Japan. All right. Well, it's been great talking, Sally. You've given us some uh, very useful insights, including the fact that, you know, perhaps we have got more work to do here in Australia, perhaps more than we think, perhaps more than the market's expecting, do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, markets are, are sort of a bit like they have been in the US, happy to jump on the soft landing narrative and, and sort of ride that for as long as it can last. Um so, you know, but but we'll see. I think, um, you know, the next couple of quarters are going to be pretty interesting. Right. Great to have you on the Weekend Edition. Thanks, Sally. Thank you, Phil. Well, there's a bit to think about, and that's the idea of the Weekend Edition. Uh, but we are back again, of course, Monday morning with the regular weekday edition of The Morning Call. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. The Weekend Edition. 